Good morning. Good morning. Uh, today we will do a standalone sermon again, and uh, in consideration of the child dedication that just took place a little earlier, uh, we'll stay on the topic of the importance of telling the next generation about God, about his characteristics, and about his work. If we were to pull parents on their greatest fears for their children, we'd probably hear answers like, I fear threatening sickness over them. Or I fear indulging them indulging in destructive behaviors. I fear them being victims of abuse and answers like that and so on. And sadly, for some parents, these fears have become reality. But as dreadful and as disheartening as they are, for the Christian parent, the greatest nightmare is a child never knowing the Lord. As a father of eight, and I did say eight, I know this fear. Sherry, my bride, wife for 32 years, and I have often had this conversation about this kind of fear. To have all eight of our children following Jesus and in a relationship with him would be a dream and prayer come true. Amen. I look at four of them. However, there is no guarantee my, my children might live broken adult lives, trapped and enslaved to sin, harming themselves and others and leaving a path of destruction behind them, never thinking of God. Or perhaps worse, they live outwardly pleasant lives, education, career, marriage, children, comfort, money, possessions, the American dream, and doing all of this without acknowledging God or giving him thanks. And as parents, I know, I know, I know we can't control if our children come to Christ. Salvation is from the Lord. And yet, we can control whether or not they learn of him and his saving work. We can intentionally share the gospel and ask for repentance of their sins and to trust in Jesus. We can read God's word to them and explain it. We can share how Jesus has saved us. But this morning, this is not a sermon on parenting. It's a sermon for all Christians, whether you are a parent or not. And if you're not a Christian... This sermon is also for you to hear. Perhaps this will be a stepping stone and maybe the last stone that takes you from being a non-Christian to a Christian. As we start this morning, here's a question for each one of us to answer, and I'll ask for your response. Do you believe it's important to tell the next generation about God? Yes. Then you agree with the Bible. You agree with the Old Testament prophets, you agree with the New Testament authors, and most importantly, you agree with God. 
from like the very beginning, from like the third page in the Bible, when the first two kids to ever exist are introduced, Cain and Abel, children of Adam and Eve, God's plan to have a strong emphasis telling the next generation about all of his magnificent deeds, all of his mighty acts, and all of his wonderful works kicked into action. As a matter of fact, now, not only do you agree that's important, earlier, you agreed to help do it. When Kenan said, do you, as a congregation, undertake Will you help and undertake the responsibility of assisting these parents in Christian nurturing of their children? Did you mean it? Like Kenan said, Doug's going to hold you accountable to that. I'm not holding you accountable to that. I'm saying to you, if you said that, God is holding you accountable to that. We have to mean it because to make such a commitment can't be casual, half-hearted, or flippant. It can't be, well, everyone around me is saying yes, so I'll say yes as well. We know how that'll work. It won't work. It won't happen. Better to not take a vow like that than to say it half-heartedly. If we are serious about this kind of responsibility, it's going to require a commitment from us. Psalm 78 gives us instructions on what we are to say to the next generation and tells us why we should say it. And I would like for us to look at that psalm today. So if you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 78, which, if your Bible is like mine, it starts with these words, a masculine of Asaph. And so let me just ask, answer a question. What is a masculine? I'll do my best. And who is Asaph? A masculine has somewhat of an uncertain meaning, though it's found several places throughout Psalms. Most Bible translation leans towards it being a musical term. And many Bible scholars believe that a masculine was primarily written to give instructions, followed by a deep time of meditation on what was the instructions that were given for the people who would hear it. So perhaps this afternoon, that would be our homework assignment, that we would give deep consideration of Psalm 78. And Asaph, he is the author of this psalm, and he's the author of several psalms. He's mentioned several places throughout the Bible. King David, he assigned several musical worship leaders to lead the people, and it seems that Asaph was the number one guy on the list. I would think the same way that Kenan is our number one guy on the list here at Good News, Asaph would have been King David's number one guy. Asaph was also a prophet, which means he wasn't always the most popular or the most liked guy in town. His prophet's prophecy often had to do with judgment, judgment on his own people. That's never a very, like, woohoo, exciting message to hear. And yet that's the way he recorded things in Psalms. I will say Psalm 78, it's a long psalm. It's the second longest in the entire book, only Psalm 119, and it's 176 verses is longer. Uh, I think Psalm 78 is going to be a perfect cliff note edition of 500 years of Israel's history. If you want to know in quick, rapid fashion, what is Israel's history from the time they were captives in Egypt to the time of King David's reign, this is the chapter for you. And now, are you ready for this? 
We are going to read all 72 verses. Ready? A mask of Asaph. My people, hear my instruction. Listen to what I say. I will declare wise sayings. I will speak mysteries from the past. Things that we have heard and known and that our fathers have passed down to us. We must not hide them from their children, but must tell a future generation the praises of the Lord, his might, and the wonderful works he has performed. He established a testimony in Jacob and set up a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children so that a future generation, children yet to be born, might know. They were to rise and tell their children so that they might put their confidence in God and not forget God's work, but keep his commands. Then they would not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not loyal and whose spirit was not faithful to God. The Ephraimite archers turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant and refused to live by his law. They forgot what he had done, the wonderful works that he had shown them. He worked wonders in the sight of their fathers in the land of Egypt, the region of Zion. He split the sea and brought them across. The water stood firm like a wall. He led them with a cloud by day and with a fiery light throughout the night. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink as abundant as the depths. He brought streams out of the stone and made waters flow down like rivers. But they continued to sin against him, rebelling in the desert against the Most High. They deliberately tested God, demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Is God able to provide food in the wilderness? Look. He struck the rock and water gushed out, torrents overflowed, but can he also provide bread or furnish meat for his people? Therefore the Lord heard and became furious. Then fire broke out against Jacob and anger flared up against Israel because they did not believe God or rely on his salvation. He gave a command to the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven. He rained manna for them to eat. He gave them grain from heaven. People ate the bread of angels. He sent them an abundant supply of food. He made the east wind blow in the skies and drove the south wind by his might. He rained meat on them like dust and winged birds like the sands of the sea. He made them fall in his camp all around his tent. They ate and were completely satisfied, for he gave them what they craved. Before they had satisfied their desire, while the food was still in their mouths, God's anger flared up against them, and he killed some of their best men. He struck down Israel's choice men. Despite all of this, they kept sinning and did not believe his wonderful works. He made their days end in futility, their years in sudden disaster. When he killed some of them, the rest began to seek him. They repented and searched for God. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. But they deceived him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their hearts were insincere toward him, and they were unfaithful to his covenant. Yet he was compassionate. He atoned for their guilt and did not destroy them. He often turned his anger aside and did not unleash all his wrath. He remembered that they were only flesh, a wind that passes and does not return. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They constantly tested God and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power, shown on the day he redeemed them from the foe, when he performed his miraculous signs in Egypt and his wonders in the region of Zoan. He turned their rivers into blood, 
and they could not drink from the streams. He sent among them swarms of flies which fed on them and frogs which devastated them. He gave their crops to the caterpillar and the fruit of their labor to the locusts. He killed their vines with hail and their sycamore fig trees with a flood. He handed over their livestock to hail and their cattle to lightning bolts. He sent his burning anger against them, fury, indignation, and calamity, a band of deadly messengers. He cleared a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but delivered their lives to the plague. He struck all the firstborn in Egypt, the first progeny of the tents of Ham. He led his people out like sheep and guided them like a flock in the wilderness. He led them safely, and they were not afraid, but the sea covered their enemies. He brought them to his holy land, to the mountain his right hand acquired. He drove out nations before them. He apportioned their inheritance by lot and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. But they rebelliously tested the Most High God, for they did not keep his decrees. They treacherously turned away like their fathers. They became warped like a faulty bow. They enraged him with their high places and provoked his jealousy with their craved images, carved images. God heard and became furious. He completely rejected Israel. He abandoned the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent where he resided among them. He gave up his strength to captivity and his splendor to the hand of a foe. He surrendered his people to the sword because he was enraged with his heritage. Fire consumed his chosen young men, and his young women had no wedding songs. His priest fell by the sword, but the widows could not lament. Then the Lord awoke as it was from sleep, like a warrior from the effects of wine. He beat back his foes. He gave them lasting shame. He rejected the tent of Joseph and did not choose the tribe of Ephraim. He chose instead the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. He built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth that he established forever. He chose David, his servant, and gave him from the sheepfolds. He brought him from tending ewes to be shepherd over his people, Jacob, over Israel, his inheritance. He shepherded them with a pure heart and guided them with skillful hands. That's Psalm 78, and that's a drink of water. <laughs> we might have just set a world record for the most verses read. At a good news Sunday service at one time. What a chapter. It's captivating. Remember at the start when I said this would be a good sermon for non-Christians to hear? If you are here and that's you, you just heard about the one true God, magnificent, holy, faithful, compassionate, righteous, and he is in control of all things. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. God planned and arranged and met every need that Israelites had. And he has done the same exact thing for us. Your greatest need is a savior who can save you from your sins. God has planned, arranged, and met those needs. He planned for Jesus to be born of a virgin. He arranged for Jesus to be crucified on the cross for your sins. He has met your greatest need. And for anyone who comes to terms with the reality of their sin, admits it, confesses it, and places their trust in God's prearranged plan, moves from a non-Christian to a Christian status and becomes a child of God. This can be you. 
God uses chapters like Psalm 78 for people to hear about God and to know God in a way that causes them to put their confidence and trust in God. It is indeed good news. But do not miss the warning on your life that comes with a chapter like this. When Israel rejected God and rebelled against God, even though God is extremely patient and slow to respond, he didn't just look the other way and ignore it. Eventually, there was a judgment and consequence that the Israelites had to face. And there is a judgment and a consequence that every non-Christian will have to face. It is imperative. It is critical that each one of us has a sincere, real coming to Jesus moment in our lives. I am thankful that anyone and everyone that is here today heard Psalm 78. There are two main themes throughout this chapter. Perhaps you picked up on them. Here they are. God is faithful. People, not so much. Over and over and over, that is the pattern. God is faithful. People are not. This chapter is a microcosmic description, not only of the history of Israel, but it's a description of history everywhere. When Asaph says in verse 2, I will declare wise sayings, I will speak mysteries from the past, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have passed down to us, I think he means, despite that all that God has done for Israel, despite all the wonderful works that he mentions in these 72 verses, despite all the miraculous mighty acts of God, despite all of that, the people still do not pledge their allegiance to God. But instead, they keep on sinning. They keep on rejecting him. And it makes you ask the question, why do human beings do that? What makes people forget miraculous things like this? And I think the quick answer is just simple to say, it's our sin, it's our depravity. So what does Asaph say for us to tell our people? I think the first thing that he says here is in verse four. What do we tell the next generation? We tell them about our failures. We don't hide those. When it comes to telling the next generation about God and everything that is good and wonderful and righteous about him, a good thing to do before that is to talk about the bad, about the problem. Asaph doesn't sweep their failures under the rug. Neither does God and neither does the gospel. A great starting point when telling the next generation about God is to admit our failures. Personal failures, national failures, personal failures. As hard as it might be, as humbling as that might be, we must acknowledge that our actions are offensive to a righteous, holy God is a great place to start when sharing the gospel. Psalm 78, if we're being honest, turns out to sound very familiar to our own lives in many ways. 
There are two examples that I want to show you. And after we show them, I, I hope you, I, I think you'll agree and go, oh yeah, we're not so much different than those people in Psalm 78. Here's the first example. Like the Israelites, we spend a lot of time complaining. Verses, 30, excuse me, verses 18 to 32, we won't read them again, but when we read them the first time, it went like this. God is providing for the Israelites day and night. He's just delivered them out of Egypt. He's leading them by a cloud in the day and a fiery furnace at night. He's provided water out of rocks in really strange ways that come gushing open out in the middle of nowhere. And it was not good enough for them. They complained and they wanted more. They wanted meat. And even after God made it rain down birds from the sky, the text said that the ground was full of birds the way the beach is full of sand. That's quite a picture. Imagine what that must have looked like. And get this, with their bellies full, they still complained. And I just responded, those ungrateful brats. And then thought, oh no, we resemble some of this. I don't use my kids as examples often. It's part of the deal of dad preaching with them. Um, but here's one I love when my kids show gratitude to their mom for making a meal for them. They express the thanks, they like it, it's good, it's good, but there are some times, eh, doesn't have enough salt. Is that all there is? This looks horrible. <laughs> I wonder... if we ever sound that way to God. Do you ever demand more from God without appreciating what he's already given you? It seems we complain to God when our desire to satisfy our own cravings is greater than our desire to honor him. And indirect complaining is still complaining. Like, I, I think we're uh, smart enough, some, well, I don't know. As Christians, sometimes we kind of like figure out that learn this Christian game. So I will not just look right up to God and go, God, I hate it or I don't like. But oh, we are very quick to indirectly complain. Let me get that phone and text that thing out there. Or we mumble under our breath often. Those still count. God hears everything. He hears that. A second example that I think we're like the people in Psalm 78 is found in verses 34 to 37. Insincere repentance. Verses 34 to 37. God was beginning to get their attention. You know how he got their attention? He started having grandma and mom and dad and uncle die. And friends and oh, then they began to remember God. Then they started remembering all the good stuff he did. Oh, I remember the water and the rock stuff coming, all that happening. But 30, verse 36 gives full disclosure. 
They deceived him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their hearts were insincere towards him, and they were unfaithful to his covenant. They were masterminds at giving lip service. They said the right things, but in their hearts, they didn't submit, and their actions proved it. And the hard question to ask is, can we relate? Ever mumble a half-hearted prayer just before communion, knowing full well that we're still holding on to bitterness? Have you ever said sorry and not meant it? I was a dean of students for a long time. I saw this happen a lot. We are often a lot like Israel. We are not sorry. We're only sorry because of the discipline. But we're not sorry because of our actions that led to the discipline. It's pretty raunchy, it's pretty gross. And what blows me away is when we read the very next verse, and I want you to see it, it's in verse 38. Yet, us in our insincere apologies and repentance, yet, he was compassionate. He atoned for their guilt and did not destroy them. He often turned his anger aside and did not unleash all of his wrath. Do you know what happens when God unreleases all of his wrath? You are no more. It's absolutely incredible the way God responds to Israel and to us when it comes to our insincere repentance. But this leads us to the second what we tell the next generation. And it's found in verses four through six. It's been stated many times already this morning, but here it is. We must tell the future generation the praises of the Lord, his might and his wonderful works he has performed. He established a testimony in Jacob and he set up a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children so that a future generation, children yet to be born, might know. On the slide, it looks like this. We tell the next generation about the greatness of God, and we never stop saying it. And this is where I want to stop and just say, I am so thrilled at how so many of you are doing this. Uh, my position as an assistant pastor, I get to see things and hear stories that are fabulous. Extending from just this morning, singing our songs, the row right behind me, little kids singing louder than some of the adults, and mom and dad are there to encourage that. I turned around and watched. So thank you all for letting me see that. That was great. To hear what I hear that comes out of our community groups, where it's not just all the adults get together and they just ignore the kids. We have teenagers teaching the kids while the adults are doing their study. We have community groups where it's a point of emphasis that, oh yeah, we're going to study together and fellowship together and we're going to let our kids do that as well. It's phenomenal. And let me just say, we can't stop. There has to be a heavy, heavy diet making a big deal about God and his stupendous ways. 
Get every exact and vivid adjective you can in front of his name. Our children need to hear how sin entered the world through Adam's rebellion. But they also need to hear how graciously God was when he made a promise to reverse the curse through a coming deliverer. They need to know that it was in God's judgment that he flooded the earth and in mercy saved Noah and his family. They need to know about Exodus and how God delivered Israel from slavery through his great acts of judgment. They need to be so familiar with God parting the Red Sea and God providing manna and God taking the people to their, to their land that they could retell the story in their sleep. They need to know how God protected David from Saul. They need to know how God sustained Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. They got to know how God shielded Daniel from the lions. And oh, they've got to know about Jesus. They need to know that he is the son of God in human flesh. Jesus is the Passover lamb and the savior of the world. They must know this. They need to know that all of the Old Testament points to Jesus. They need the New Testament to see Jesus and his miracles and his compassion. And they need to hear that his death and grave conquering resurrection isn't just a historical fact, but it is for them. It is for all of us. Do you want to be part of something like this? As a question. Do you want to be part of something like this? Okay. So. I have an opportunity for you, and I want to present it to you. Here's just one way of how you can make good on your promise to help parents in Christian nurturing. Help in kids' zone. If this is going to sound like a commercial, so be it. If it sounds like a sales job, so be it. I'm going to tell you, it's more important than a commercial, and it's more important than a sales job. This is what is at stake at Good News. On a Sunday morning, of our 650-ish people that attend in our two services, 115 of them are children, fifth grade and below. I asked Jenny Stanley, if you don't know Jenny Stanley, she's fabulous. You need to meet her. She's passionate about what she does. She loves Jesus. She loves kids. Yes, very good. I support all of that clapping. That is good. She said, uh, well, Kenan made the chart, and she gave me the stats, and they are fabulous, and I just get to talk about it. Here it is. On a Sunday morning, at this service right now, there are six classes going on, two volunteers and a person that checks them in, and we do this for two services, so we need 26 people at a service. Jenny's goal would be to have us just have people serve one time a month. That means we need 104 people to do it, and right now we have 79. Now, again, this sounds like you know, a pledge commitment and raising funds type thing. I'm saying to you, we need more people. I'm saying to you, if you're going to take seriously about telling the next generation, this is an opportunity to do it. It's not the only opportunity, it's an opportunity. Our youth group is 85 kids on Wednesday night, all done by eight people overseeing it. Wednesday works for you, come, be on the team, join the effort, tell the next generation. It doesn't even include, do you know we have a community group of kids? 
like adults do their community group. On Wednesday night, there's a community group of 30 plus kids that meet in that kid zone going crazy. All being told about the goodness of God. I would encourage you to prayerfully consider getting on this team. Why? Why do this? Psalm 78 will tell us, and we end with this in verse 7. We tell the next generation, verse 7, so that they might put their confidence in God and not forget God's work, but keep his commands. Three very plain forward reasons why we do this. Our children need to put their confidence in God, not in themselves and nothing less than God. As an adult, we have an advantage of realizing you can put your confidence in a lot of things in this earth and it's not going to meet the mark. It's not going to satisfy. Only our confidence in God. When it's all said and done, when it's all taken away, and it will be, our confidence in God is going to be the only thing that matters. Which gets us to number two. Remember God. Forgetting God would be the most egregious thing we could have happen to our children. And I say we make the commitment to say it's not going to happen on our watch. And third, obedience. I don't know how the song made it into our home. It's a children's song, and part of the lyrics go like this. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. Doing exactly what the Lord commands and doing it cheerfully. That's a wonderful reason to tell the next generation. And so going back to an original slide, will you as a congregation undertake the responsibility of assisting these parents and the Christian nurturing of their children? And you say, May God make it so. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for being Father. I thank you for all the families and the children that are here at Good News. Not all local churches have crying babies and energetic four-year-olds, but you have seen it, that that is the case here at Good News. And with that, Lord, we recognize that there is a responsibility that has been placed upon us. And in knowing that we will be accountable for how we tell the next generation, I pray that we think deeply on Psalm 78 and that you would open our eyes to see what the Israelites did that was horrific and wrong and learn from that. Lord, don't let us repeat that kind of history and let us see, Lord, your faithfulness and your goodness and that you are worth following and that you are worth telling the next generation of your goodness 
your greatness and your miraculous acts. Do this, Father, in, in, in your power. We want to do it in your name and for your glory and for the good of all here at Good News and abroad. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.